Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Herbert Hoover served as President of the United States from 1929 to 1933, during the first years of the Great Depression. It was a dark time for this country and a difficult time to lead it. But there is a lot more to the life of Herbert Hoover than the years he spent as president and the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch, Hoover's birthplace, introduces visitors to the life and work of Herbert Hoover and his fascinating and accomplished wife, Lou Henry Hoover, also an Iowan. But it has been 30 years since the museum has been renovated, and it's time to change that. This hour, we'll talk about the lives and legacies of the Hoovers and plans for the future. But let's start with a voice from the past. The Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum was officially dedicated and opened to the public on August 10th, 1962, President Hoover's 88th birthday. Here is an excerpt from the speech he gave that day. Within these libraries are thrilling records of supreme action by the American people, their devotion and sacrifice to their ideals. Santa Ana rightly said, those who do not remember their past are condemned to relive it again. Now these institutions are the repositories of such experience and they are to be had hot off the griddle. In these records there are, no doubt, many unfavorable remarks made by our political opponents as well as the expressions of appreciation and affection by our friends. We may hope that future students will rely upon our friends for consultation. (laughs) In any event, when students become sleepy, they may be awakened by the lightning flashes of American political humor in these archives. That is the voice of President Herbert Hoover at the dedication of the Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch, which is an underwriter of Iowa Public Radio. The Hoover Presidential Foundation is now undertaking a major capital campaign, the Timeless Values Campaign, with plans to renovate the museum for the first time in 30 years. And this hour, we'll talk about the lives and legacies of the Hoovers and plans for the future of the museum. With me, Tom Schwartz, director of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. Hello, Tom. Hi, Charity. Welcome back to the show. And Jerry Flagel is also here, president and CEO of the Hoover Presidential Foundation. Hello, Jerry. Uh, Great. Good morning. Thank you both so much for being here. And Tom, I want to start with you. I mean, okay, it's been 30 years since the last renovation, but why do you feel that this is something that's important to do now? So the purpose of a renovation is that enough time has lapsed and things have changed that require the museum to change in order to be in step, not only with the times, but with audience expectations. So what's changed in 30 years? Well, a whole new slew of scholarship that is finding Hoover to be a much more 
personable and interesting character, very complex, full of paradox and contradiction. But yet scholars are seeing more meaning and significance to his accomplishments. And they're also understanding that the, the Great Depression wasn't merely as black and white as some of the early scholarship, which was heavily partisan, uh, tended to paint it. I think the other thing is that exhibit uh, techniques and museum design has changed um, to, again, better engage the audience in the story. And uh, the last thing is that audiences have changed. The uh, audiences today, you have several generations that have grown up um, on flat screens. <laughs> Every, their lives are now in their phone, and they are much more visually inclined um, than being a generation of readers. The current uh, museum has a lot of text, which appeals to an older audience, but to a younger audience that haven't mastered reading, um, it, it's an obstacle. It's a barrier. Now, the one thing that the museum does get right uh, is that it uses white figures. By that, I mean they're three-dimensional figures. The first one you encounter is Hoover as a young boy with a fishing pole. And so you don't need to read to be able to figure out that he had a love of fishing. Um, the picture or, or the gallery that gets the most interest from students shows a figure of Lou wearing a hat and a six-shooter leaning on a, a uh, cannon. And this was during the siege during the Boxer Rebellion when they were in China in the town of Tianzhen. Um, after explaining it to a school group, one of the young girls yelled, Lou was fierce. She was fierce, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's absolutely true. That, but. What that exhibit did was it showed that she was engaged in the story. And a successful museum wants to create that empathetic bond between the visitor and the subjects of the story so that you want to follow the story and find out what happens, you know. And, you know, the exhibit design firm, BRC Imagination Arts, actually shows through the lives of Bert and Lou Henry Hoover this emotional kind of pattern of their highs and lows and what the visitor should be feeling. Um, and and that, that is what we're trying to do is to move it from a museum with text on the walls and objects in glass cases to a museum where people are more involved in the story, that's an experiential museum. So one way that that exhibit of Lou could be enhanced, remove the barriers and let the kids actually walk in to that scene with you know, plaster from uh, shelled buildings lying all around. The exhibit showing a young Hoover in a makeshift table outside of the entrance of a mine 
remove those barriers and allow the kids to actually go into that mine and see what it's like. We grew up uh, going to museums, seeing the signs that said, do not touch. Yes. <laughs> and yet, that's how people learn. Um, they're very tactile. And so if you can create environments that allow visitors to touch, to interact, they retain more of that story. And more importantly, they carry more of that story with them as they leave. Um, that's the one thing that all museums should try to do, and that is to create a change in the visitor from when they enter to when they leave. There, there needs to be a change that occurs during that visit. I want to talk more about the plans for the future and also get reacquainted with these incredible people that that you are telling the stories of because I think, honestly, still a lot of Iowans don't know all that much about the Hoovers. And, Jerry, I am curious about you. I mean, you're the president and CEO of the Hoover Presidential Foundation. What got you involved with the Hoovers and this cause? Well, uh, actually, it was about 10 years ago uh, this month. I actually interviewed for this job uh, on there. And as Tom said, one of the parts of the interview was going around the library and um, you know seeing that. And Tom was pointing those things out. So we really want to go from a diorama to a uh, immersive experience on there. So, um, I, you know, for me, I grew up in West Branch, uh, moved away. I was away for 28 years and come back. So that's a whole set of different stories, too. But um, the Hoover story, as you learn more and more about it, is just unbelievable. In fact, you know, we've said is I, I can't understand why this hasn't become a Hollywood movie. I mean, his life story is on there, and uh, maybe someday it will be, and hopefully soon. But uh, it's a terrific story, 90 years, uh, life's ups and downs. And uh, that's one of the things we're really looking forward to is telling the story uh, in a way that uh, is going to keep people not on the edge of their seats because they're going to be going through, but uh, very interested. Well, and Jerry, as somebody who grew up in West Branch, you must have always known uh, at least a little bit about the Hoovers because West Branch obviously was the birthplace and, and the uh, the library and museum has been there since the 1960s. But did that feel like a secret that only you knew about? <laughs> a lot. And, and I would even say, I mean, yeah, I, I, I sometimes poke fun at my uh, counterparts in West Branch or the people I grew up with. And you drive by the museum, you drive through the park to basically go in and out of town every day. Yeah. And one of the things on it is, is I says, you know, we're, we're taking this thing for granted because there's a great treasure over here. It's a beautiful park. Uh, on there. And I think it's almost like a, a security blanket. People, oh yeah, I've got to go over and stop and see that someday. And they just never do. And I think the whole populace of Iowa is almost somewhat like that. And that's what we want to change. It's not that far from I-80. No. But it, it is funny, as somebody who grew up in Iowa and who loves Iowa history, um, I really didn't know anything about the Hoovers and certainly nothing about Lou Henry Hoover until I started doing this job 12 years ago and, and was reading books about Herbert Hoover. But it is, it's a little bit astonishing that uh, here is this extraordinary couple. And all I learned when I was growing up was that he was president during the Great Depression. And maybe we didn't want to talk about that very much. Uh, and and that's, that's what a lot of people have their uh, parameters of, of how they view Herbert Hoover. Uh, on there. But uh, it, I mean, it's just an amazing life story that uh, Herbert Hoover had. And, and uh, that's the charge of the museum to tell it. And I think, as Tom mentioned, is what we really want to do is inspire people once they go through it and see 
how somebody that uh, was born and grew up in a small town in Iowa can become uh, so powerful and impactful throughout the world, not only as U.S. president, but with his humanitarian efforts that he did overseas uh, on there. It's just amazing and uh, how people can make a difference in, in other people's lives. All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. This hour, we are talking about plans for a major renovation of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch. With me, Jerry Flagel, President and CEO of the Hoover Presidential Foundation, and Tom Schwartz, Director of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we are talking about the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. It was officially dedicated in West Branch, Iowa, the birthplace of President Herbert Hoover in 1962, and it last underwent a major renovation in 1992. So it's been 30 years since a major renovation, and right now the museum and the foundation are undertaking a major capital campaign and planning for a new overhaul to bring this museum into the 21st century. The Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum is an underwriter of IPR. And with me right now, Tom Schwartz, director of the Presidential Library and Museum, and Jerry Flagel, president and CEO of the Hoover Presidential Foundation. And just before the break, we were talking about how, in some ways, the life of Herbert Hoover is a secret, even from Iowans. It's not something that, when I was growing up, we learned about in Iowa history, and Iowa history is taught far different, and I would say maybe a little less than, than it was when I was growing up. And I mean, Tom, as the, as the director of the museum, you came here from Illinois, and you worked at the Lincoln Museum in Springfield. And of course, everybody knows who Abraham Lincoln is, and everybody thinks they know a little bit about his life story. And then you come to Iowa. Was that kind of a bit of a shock when you found that even people in Iowa didn't necessarily know anything about Herbert Hoover? Yeah. I mean, the ongoing joke of my staff in Illinois was that, why are you trading down presidents? <laughs> you know, and, and I had to tell them that the Hoover story is every bit as big and powerful and inspirational as the Lincoln story and in some ways even more so. It, it, it's just that no one knows it. And uh, I was a little bit surprised coming to Iowa. Again, when people would ask, well, what do you do? And I'd tell them and they'd say, oh, you know, I try, travel I-80 a lot and I see those signs, but I've never stopped. And so it's a question of, you know, why hasn't Iowa embraced this story? Um, you know, I know that the history textbooks paint Hoover as the Depression president. Um, but the pre his life and the accomplishments of both he and his, his wife, because it really was a partnership, which is one of the things we hope to correct in the renovation. 
to have more of Lou throughout the entire story, uh, is that his greatest accomplishments occurred before and after the presidency. All the other presidential libraries, the presidency is the pinnacle of their achievement. Uh, and not so much for the Hoovers. Not that he didn't have accomplishments as a president, uh, but, but his, his greatest impact were his humanitarian efforts both before the presidency and post-presidency. And I think people from abroad understand that and appreciate that more. Um, one of the most touching stories in my, my tenure there was – at the end of a fall day, it had been raining and a German couple had gone to the front desk right before closing and said, we left something at the gravesite. We don't know if it's permissible, but we just wanted you to understand, you know, we did it. So the next day I went up and it was still kind of drizzling. And what they had done is they had put a solar powered light that we used to kind of our, the entrance to our house. And attached to it was a card and a Ziploc bag in the shape of a heart. And you opened it up and it said, a little light for your grave. You fed us in our darkest days and we are grateful. Two beneficiaries and it had their names. Now, these were children after World War II that Hoover fed. And don't know what motivated them to come to West Branch, but they felt compelled, you know, to show and to honor someone that they never met in life, but who provided them sustenance at their most dire time of need. Yeah. And it's just not them. I mean, it's tens of millions of, of, of children uh, in World War One and post World War One and the Russian famine, I mean the exhibit that just closed talking about Hoover's food relief efforts and the Russian famine from 1921 to 23. At its height, he was feeding over 10 million children a day, and in a country that we didn't even have diplomatic relations with. Uh, and my biggest problem in promoting that exhibit was that social media put a ban on the use of the words Russia, Soviet Russia, <laughs> and Ukraine, which was one of the areas of the largest feeding efforts. But uh, it, it really, again, is, once people are introduced to the story, once they see the breadth and the magnitude and the emotional impact um, they're hooked. Yeah. They're hooked. And, I mean, Tom, I, I think that there are probably a lot of people listening now who don't know a great deal about Herbert and, and Lou Hoover. So leading up to the great humanitarian efforts, I know that you and I could talk about this for hours, but we're going to do it very quickly. I mean, Herbert Hoover and, and Lou Hoover were both really people who were ahead of their times. They were scientists. They were geologists. They met at Stanford University. So tell me a little bit about the that time that led up to really Hoover's finest moment that has earned him the title of the great humanitarian. 
so um, Hoover was part of that founding class at Stanford, that first group of students that enrolled. Leland Stanford created Stanford University in memory of his late son. He wanted to create a living memorial. And to get people to enroll, he offered free tuition. And so Hoover thought that that was too good a thing to pass up. When he was a senior in the geology program, the first woman to major in geology enrolled. Her name was Lou Henry, uh, born in Waterloo, Iowa. Mother had respiratory problems that required a more healthful climate. So they moved to Whittier and Monterey in California. And she heard a lecture from John Bramer, who was the head of the geology department at Stanford, and asked her father, can I enroll? And he said, sure. And so she was a freshman, uh, though several months older than Hoover in age. Uh, she was born in uh, March of 1874. He was born in August. Uh, but he was ready to graduate, and something clicked between them. And he said he'd go off, make something himself in the world, and allow her to finish her studies. He ended up going uh, be employed by Baywick Mooring, the largest mining firm in the world, sent to the western uh, gold fields of Australia, uh, made his fortune there, came back, they got married, and immediately he took her off to China uh, where he had a contract. They, what she would do is she would send back ore samples that were missing from the collections at Stanford. So she really helped build up um, the scientific collections at Stanford with their world travels. Uh, and they ended up in London right before World War I. He had his own consulting firm. Um, and then the war breaks out. And what they end up doing is helping stranded Americans get back home. Uh, he sends Lou and his two young sons home. And then he gets detained. One of his friends says, I married a Belgian woman, and the Germans have occupied most of the country, and there's no food for the civilian population. So, you know, Hoover ends up creating what today we call an NGO, a non-governmental organization, the Commission for Relief in Belgium, that ends up feeding the civilian population in Belgium and then later German-occupied northern France. Um, throughout the war, uh, roughly 8 million people. And he has to raise the money. He has to locate the food. He has to provide ships to carry the food uh, to the Netherlands, which was a neutral country, get it to the German-occupied zones, and then from there, take it to roughly a little more than 4,000 different distribution sites. Uh, there is a Belgian organization that it took it from there. But, I mean, it just required a great amount of lo logistics. It costed 
uh, he had to, he raised one billion dollars in nineteen ten dollars. Oh wow! Uh, in, in order to accomplish that, um, and so just that alone, um, I think is beyond most of us. You know, in terms of what we would consider, we'd sit on our laurels. Right. That that seems to be enough of a legacy. <laughs> but but then he goes on to uh, do the U.S. Food Administration to provide enough food for the war effort. He gets Americans to voluntarily reduce their consumption of food by fifteen percent. Um, he then heads the American Relief Administration to provide food, clothing, and medical supplies to post-war Europe. The Allied governments wanted to punish Germany and they didn't want any food to go there. He finds a way around that because he realizes that that's counterproductive. And I think the one thing that Hoover sees with the war is that this is a problem that is not going away. And so he keeps the structure for – that he used in the Commission for Relief in Belgium and the American Relief Administration uh, active. And the other incredible thing is that he, he trains this whole generation of um, leaders for NGOs uh, and food relief efforts and at a moment's notice – they will drop what they're doing and work with him on any new uh, humanitarian effort. It, it, it's unparalleled. And he, he did it without taking a salary. And the people that worked with him didn't take salaries. So they were able to direct all of the uh, funds toward actual relief. Uh, and for the Commission for Relief in Belgium, the administrative costs of that operation were less than one half of one percent. I mean, something unheard of in the philanthropic world. It, it's such a remarkable story. And, and Jerry, um, you know, as as the president of the Presidential Foundation, as obviously you're telling this story to people and trying to connect with people and getting people excited about telling these stories in a, in a more powerful way in Iowa. Um, do you find that that as people get excited and engaged in the story that I mean this really is something that they they didn't know about before? Well, and you're exactly right. And uh, you know, one of the things we've done is uh, really tried to get out, and I call get on the service club speaking route uh, on there. In fact, I'm going to go to Indianola on uh, on Friday and talk with the Rotary Club there. But uh, a lot of it is just making people aware. You know, um, as as Tom would tell you, the the four words that we always hear out of visitors when they when they get done with the uh, going through the museum is I never knew that yeah. uh, on there, and so we've got to change that. Which is not, but that's not a bad thing. No, you know, no. you know, they had a good time, uh, right? and, and and they did, and that and that's the thing. I tell people, in fact, somebody said, "Well, if you're going to renovate, why should I come now? You need to come now and see it and get excited about the story." I says because it's going to be even better when we get done uh, doing the renovation on that. But just getting the word out about Herbert Hoover and getting the opportunity to tell these stories is is uh, is is important and obviously um, you know we can do distance learning but distance learning has its limitations and there's nothing like coming to the li- to the library museum and uh, experiencing it uh, especially when uh, we're going to have the renovation done 
Well, and, and I, you're probably still discovering things about the Hoovers. Oh, I do all the time. Uh, and I, I, I know a lot more than I knew 10 years ago, and I'm sure in 10 years I'm going to know a lot more yet. Well, and, and that's one of the, the um, goals and efforts of the library and museum has been to explore the archives and to do research about the Hoovers. And, I mean, Tom, so much has been discovered about Lou Henry Hoover I mean, because nobody was paying any attention to her before. I'm sure it was all there. It's just a, she was just the wife. Well, <laughs> but the, she was the, she the, was a remarkable. Yeah. Woman. What what happened with Lou was that her papers were not available to researchers until 1985, mm. and so she missed out on a lot of the interest in women's history, the early women's history that was being written, and she's only now getting her due. Um, one of the remarkable things about Lou, not only her vast intellectual curiosity, uh, but her belief in providing women mentoring roles for leadership, and which is why she was active in the Girl Scouts, why she was active in uh, creating kind of the first women's athletic organization. Um, she. And she was often disappointed when uh, some of the young women that she was mentoring would get married because then they felt that uh, they didn't have to pursue their career anymore. Well, and, and in many cases, they weren't able to pursue right. their yeah. careers anymore. Yeah. Uh, but she was always looking for ways to support women in achieving their goals. And this is the one thing that uh, both – uh, she and her husband, uh, they were on the same wavelength in understanding the importance of the individual and in uh, helping individuals reach their maximum potential. Um, what we hope is that people will leave understanding that one person can make a difference, the power of one. And that, you know, you don't need to make, be a president, again, uh, to enact significant change. We will talk more about that in, in just a moment. <laughs> we'll talk more about Lou Henry Hoover and, and her life and legacy and what we're discovering about her now. And I mean, so many people are getting excited about her story. And I know I know a lot of people in Waterloo, Iowa, have also started taking a lot of pride in the fact that she came from Waterloo originally, something that certainly growing up in Cedar Falls right next door, I had never heard <laughs> until I, I, was a, I was probably 40 years old. All right. We'll talk more in a moment. I'm I'm with Tom Schwartz, director of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum, and Jerry Flagel, president and CEO of the Hoover Presidential Foundation. They are in the midst of a fundraising effort in preparation for an extensive renovation of the library and museum, the first time in 30 years. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we are talking about the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch, Iowa. It was officially dedicated back in 1962, and it has been 30 years since the last renovation of the museum. The Hoover Presidential Foundation is in the midst of a major capital campaign to raise money for a future renovation. The plans are already in the works, but of course, you've got to cross that finish line of fundraising before you can get there. The Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum is an underwriter of Iowa Public Radio. And with me today, Jerry Flagel, president and CEO of the Hoover Presidential Foundation, and Tom Schwartz, director of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. And uh, Tom, I want to ask you, I mean, there's been this evolution of the museum over time and well before the time that you were there. When it first opened, it, it didn't tell the story of the Great Depression. And we talked earlier about the fact that, of course, you know, that's that's the thing, that's the first thing that people learn about President Herbert Hoover is that he was president during the, the first years of the Great Depression. And, um, you know, obviously because it was such a very dark time in, in our country that really hurt his reputation a great deal. But when it first opened, that wasn't something that, that people were comfortable talking about. But at the museum now, you really do dive in and, and talk right. about that yeah. part of his life. You know, when when a li- the president is alive, um, they have a great deal of power as editor over how the story is going to be told. And so when it first opened, there was no mention of his childhood, no mention of his family, and no mention of the Great Depression. Uh, and And – There's a lot of good story there that wasn't being told. (laughs) Um, Then when they did uh, a a renovation in the 70s, it was more kind of a chronological, almost an encyclopedia approach. And then in 92, uh, what exists now, which um, has some really um, great moments in, in the museum. But again, uh, a lot of things that make it look old and dated uh, to a museum-going audience. And so, you know, we we see a lot of opportunity as we've discussed. Uh, I think uh, the the biggest thing, though, is when I take school groups through, and of course, you know, part of the the past couple years with COVID, we were shut from March 20th of 2020 to March 28th of 2022. Um, and, and that had has really hurt us and as well as our audience because schools didn't make field trips and whatever. Before COVID taking school groups through, I've noticed that the student bodies are reflecting kind of the diversity, mm-hmm. uh, the, the changing character of America. And um, it is exciting to me that um, they're still excited about the Hoover story. Um, and, and so, you know, that's our, our main purpose for people to be able to understand that portion of history. Fortunately, it's still part of the Iowa curriculum. Uh, The Depression (laughs) is part of it. Iowa history is part of it. And so uh, that that still uh, is enough to get schools to want to do a field trip to to visit us. Jerry, 
Tom just mentioned two years of, of being shut down um, because of the pandemic. And you're already dealing with the challenge of, you know, that a lot of people who haven't taken the time to visit the museum and haven't taken the time to learn this story. When you say, hey, we're fundraising for the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum, I can imagine that that sometimes people are like, yeah, so what? <laughs> so, I mean, tell me about that that challenge that you have been up against in in trying to get people excited and invested well in it, and it has been a challenge um, um as far as you know with the pandemic and uh, i i always say tug and chica says you ought to try and raise money for uh for the library that's been virtually closed or restricted for two years yeah. that's it, you know so I, our our membership dropped 30 some percent uh, on there fortunately it's just about rebounded to back where it was in uh, 2020 uh, on that but uh so so that's been a headwind um obviously the economic uh stock market the last two the, this last year has not been real favorable too but nonetheless uh we are gaining some real traction on there we've been very fortunate on there i mean the the uh, Timeless Values Modern Experience campaign is a $20 million campaign. That's our goal uh, on there. And currently we're about $11.5 million uh, on there. So we're making some good progress. We know we've got uh, probably one and a half to $2 million of uh, major gifts that uh, will be announced shortly on there. So we're making headway on there. And what is uh – what is the timeline? What is your goal? Well, uh, the, the goal, uh, original, the original goal was to uh, have the rededication uh, of the of the uh, museum on Herbert Hoover's 150th birthday, which is August 10th, 2024. I don't think we're going to quite make that. And I think we made a decision a few months ago that it's more important to do this project right. And if we if we instead of using a, I call an artificial deadline, let's get it done as quick as we can. But uh, let's not. Uh, Let's just not, you know, short, you know, do it, do it uh, in a rushed way, so forth like that. So if we have to wait a few months to to get our funding uh, on that um, and then do it, uh, we'll be good with that. We're, we're not too far off, really. Um, and uh, it's, you know, we've just been very fortunate. Uh, uh, I know the state of Iowa has really supported this uh, with a Destination Iowa grant of $5 million. I think it's one of the top five or six awards that they've given. Uh, we've also, too, the legislature passed the Hoover State Tax Credit, which uh, for the ca- museum campaign, it's a $5 million tax credit. Uh, and basically what it, how it works is, is for uh, uh, whatever amount somebody would contribute to the renovation campaign at the museum, they receive a 25% Iowa State tax credit. So if it's $100, you get a $25 tax credit, $1,000, $250, so forth like that. And uh, that's that's been a real good indicator. And it's it's set up so everybody in Iowa can contribute. We don't want this just to be a, a fundraising campaign with, with just big donors. It takes everybody to do this. And, and this is a way for everybody in Iowa to participate. And the nice thing about the state tax credits is you don't have to itemize your state tax deduction to get it. I mean, it's right there on the form. So uh, it's really beneficial and there's no minimum. So we talked earlier about some of the plans for the renovation. And uh, Tom, you used to work at the Lincoln Museum in in Illinois. And and you have gotten plans from the company that did the plans for that museum? So my work with the people at BRC Imagination Arts began with creating the Lincoln Museum in Springfield. And my takeaway from there was that they are really the best storytellers in the business. And that's what you're trying to convey is the story. Um, 
I mean, at the, at the Lincoln the, Museum, you really do get to step into Lincoln's life. You were talking earlier about yeah, being able you, to possibly step into a mine or something like that. That's so, what you do at the Lincoln Museum so is you the, visit his log cabin. You have a journey one and journey yeah. two. And journey one begins with a log cabin, <laughs> his early life, and journey two, his presidency in the White House. So, uh, you know, obviously this is not – the Hoover is a much smaller building, a much smaller footprint. It's not going to be um, like the Lincoln in, in terms of the, the grandiose the style. Yeah. Uh, and, and that project you know, started uh, from nothing. And uh, so we're dealing with a building that already exists. And it just how do you do better? So um, we've already worked – the foundation selected BRC Imagination Arts. I really wasn't involved in that process. I got to observe the process. Uh, but they interviewed a number of leading exhibit design firms. They picked BRC Imagination Arts. We've already gone through what's called a concept design where BRC has essentially shown how the museum currently can be reimagined and what the next step is to actually do the design. What will these spaces actually look like and what will be the technology and um, the immersives that will populate each gallery? Um, and, and that's a more difficult uh, job because obviously that – you start – indicating what's going to cost. <laughs> right. But it's also the fun part where you get to really dream it up and, and think about how to engage people's minds. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so um, it, the obviously, you know, there's still a lot of research that's going on that is interesting and that you'd love to be able to use the benefit of in, in the museum. But at some point you need to just say, okay – stop and, you know, this is what we're going to deal with and this is what we're going to make out of what we have. And um, so now it's really a matter of having the money in place, getting this stage for the project moving forward uh, so that, uh, you know, we can get to that finish line. One of the things that, that I think sounds coolest, I'm very excited about this, but <laughs> that sounds coolest is the uh, the types of simulations that you're hoping to have with the Uncommon Iowan Center. Can you tell me more about that, Tom? Or, or Jerry? Sure. sure. Jerry. Well, and, and you know, it was interesting is um, we've always, uh, I've seen simulations out at the Reagan and then Bush, and it's like, okay, wouldn't it be neat uh, to really put somebody in the place of Herbert Hoover during his presidency, as as the uh, depression hits, yeah, I as don't the want stock that market crashes, but, yeah. but I think it's important if we <laughs> yeah. give people an opportunity or something like that to see how that works. It's like, oh, I think there'd be a lot greater uh, respect and understanding of, of of what what it was faced on that, and and so we we named it the Uncommon Iowan Center because um, ideally what we'd like to do is build modules throughout as as money becomes available. Um, on on different scenarios, Herbert Hoover's got a great one. The presidency it would be a good one. Another one would be uh, the commission for the relief of Belgium. As as all the logistical things that he did, I think people would just it would blow their minds to to actually experience that. So it'll be a great way. One is is we want to be able to do it hopefully in the library, but the other is is we'll set it up as a distance learning program as well, uh, and it can be done. But 
but it's not it's not inexpensive to do uh, on there. So actually, our our goal is is we want to we we need to do the project to finish the bricks and mortar, and then the Uncommon Island Center is kind of like yeah, and then we'd like to do this if if we. Uh, if the money is there and everybody gravitates towards the uncommon yeah, island it's center exciting. so it, it really is cool. exciting it is exciting on there um so so uh, we're really hopeful on that and and the other is is with uncommon islands there's a lot of uncommon islands throughout history um you know i would just use for an example a story could be done on on uh, uh, robert ray when he was governor when he faced the southeast asian refugee crisis about what he had to do how he recognized it uh, and so forth like that. So those are the possibilities out there. And uh, we're really excited about it. And, uh, uh, you know, Governor Ray was a longtime trustee, big supporter of the, of the Hoover Library. So uh, um, it, we just think there's a lot of, lot of options out there and things that we can do. Well, we've just skimmed the surface of the mm-hmm. lives of, of Herbert and, and Lou Hoover uh, this hour. But they there's not only a lot of history to learn there, but they're such inspirational individuals. So, Jerry, when when this renovation is complete and and you think about what you hope the people who visit take away with them, what what is that hope? Well, I think the hope on it is is a greater understanding of one of the the greatest humanitarians in the world uh, on there and what drove him to do it. And, and the background and really how anybody anybody could do it um, or has the possibility to do that. And if they could just make themselves uh, um, get the most uh, – I'm trying to remember Tom's exact words, but everybody to get the most out of themselves. If you can aspire to do that, and that's what we want to try and do is come out of – when you come out of that museum is you want to be uncommon, uh, you know, and uh, – and, and lead an uncommon life in a positive way on there. And uh, that's the main goal that we want to accomplish. Tom, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, too. I always gravitate to Lou Henry Hoover's. It was attributed to her. We're still trying to find out where she actually said it. But she talked about stealth philanthropy. Mm-hmm. And part of that is that Quaker belief of being driven by the light within and that to do things in humility and modesty. When you see a need, you address the need. And it doesn't matter if the person that you help knows you're helping. Um, And in fact, it's better that they don't. Uh, And both Herbert and Lou Henry Hoover kind of led their lives in that way. addressing need, but not drawing attention to themselves. Um, And in that way, it inspires the people who are helped don't feel beholden (laughs) to those who help them, but rather understand that what they need to do is to pay it forward and become part of that process of addressing need. And so I think that, again, people take away not only to be inspired, that they need to make a difference, but they need to practice stealth philanthropy. We've talked a lot this hour about the legacies of the Hoovers. Tom, this feels like a personal legacy for you as well to to get this moving and make this happen. <laughs> the best thing about doing things uh, of significance is that a lot of people are involved. It's, it's no one individual that, that uh, 
really is the driver. And that was the same with Herbert Hoover. He was able to, and Lou, they were able to attract an incredible array of very capable people to get things done. And so I am appreciative that I'm part of this process. And uh, I hope that uh, we can get over the finish line, raising the money and uh, doing the renovation. Jerry, I'm sure this feels very personal for you, too. Uh, well, yeah, it, it is. I mean, I, I really want to get this done. It's a big, huge project. Uh, we've done very, very well so far, but we've still got a ways to go and uh, want to get it completed. Um, and, and I would just add, too, is the Hoover family is just tremendous to work with on there. And, uh, you know, it, it'll, in a big way, I want to do it for the Hoover family. Jerry Flagel, thank you so much. Thank you. Jerry Flagel is president and CEO of the Hoover Presidential Foundation. Tom Schwartz, thank you. Thank you. Tom Schwartz, director of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. This hour, we've been talking about their Timeless Values campaign, a goal to raise enough money to fully renovate the museum and tell the stories of Herbert and Lou Henry Hoover in more powerful and engaging ways. You can find out more at timelessvaluescampaign.com. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.